Hey everybody, this episode with my friend Diana is wonderful. It's also pretty powerful, very emotional. It's not disturbing or graphic, but just wanted to give you a heads up just in case your state of mind based on being isolated is a little different than you normally would be. So I really enjoyed hearing this story firsthand, and I'm so glad I did. And I think Diana and Rich's story is inspirational, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your comments. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I'm actually coming to you from my isolation bunker because even though it's... um, uh, COVID-19, uh, my roof is getting worked on too. So my guest today decided to do it remote to be smart, but then I'm also hunkered down to avoid the hammering that's on the roof. And so with that, I'd like to introduce my friend, Diana Vischer. She's a mom and a patient safety advocate. Thank you for your patience with the technical troubles and I appreciate you making the time. Oh, of course. I'm happy that you invited me to do this. Yeah, it's been a while that we've been talking about it. So um, just happy to to talk about it. And with that, um, tell me the story of uh, being a patient safety advocate. Well, it's definitely not something I ever thought I would have a role that I would step into. But in 2008, um, I had my son Grant Lars Vischer on April 8th, and prior to his birth, we knew that he was going to be born with a heart defect because when I was 18 weeks pregnant, they were doing an ultrasound and discovered that one of the quadrants of his heart did not look proportionate to what they expected it to be. And so from that moment forward, going through the rest of my pregnancy, I have more pictures of his heart um, in gestation than I do of anything else because they started monitoring it to um, check its growth and to see exactly what to expect when he was born. And so when he was born, he was born with what's called coarctation of the aorta, where basically the valves in his heart were not positioned correctly around his esophagus and, um, and not large enough to do the job that they needed to do. So when he was four days old, he ended up having open heart surgery and had a Gore-Tex valve replace part of his heart. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. I think science is completely amazing that they can go through my body to his body at 18 weeks gestation. So he's not very big at that point and discover at that moment that he was going to be born with a heart defect. And to have the science um, that was in place at the time to actually be able to give him, you know, a replication of what he needed for his heart to function properly. And so, yeah, so they inserted a Gore-Tex valve um, and he was doing really great right after surgery. So at 18 weeks, how's, that's, that's halfway through, if I'm doing my math right, is it like 36, 37 weeks? I have two kids. I should know this, but um, um, 40, that's week, like, 40 weeks is considered full term. Okay. Anything less, um, they consider it varying degrees of premature. Now, Grant ended up being born at 37 weeks, but they did not consider him premature because at the time he was born, his lungs were still fully developed. 
And um, he ended up being born at 37 weeks because I had further complications in my pregnancy. Not only was he going to be born with a heart defect, but at 37 weeks, my amniotic fluid started running low. Mm. And uh, so I can remember them telling me to go soak in a bath and drink as much water to see if that would help. And, um, you know, and they did some different types of monitoring to check. And the second day um, when I went in for the follow-up checkup, they said, nope, it hasn't increased. You will be having your baby tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And so that is how Grant ended up being born on April 8th, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which incidentally, was my step grandpa's birthday. So all three of my children actually share birthdays with members of my family. It's funny how that works sometimes, isn't it? It is. We share. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your what was your state of mind like um at 18 weeks when you heard that? What what did they say? I mean, did they give a prognosis? And um, um I guess just how did it make you feel? Because I, I know that I would be terrified out of my wits. I was scared anyway with a, just a fairly normal pregnancy for my two kids. We were definitely terrified. Um, cause of course the moment that they say that there's a malformation, you start wondering, okay, what does this mean for my child? What, um, you know, what is the impact on his life going to be? Um, it also is a moment where the doctors start trying to guess at what has caused the said birth defect. And so they, um, every checkup I went into, um, as his heart developed, they would think of another type of syndrome that could have possibly triggered um, his defect. And I remember every time they would give me a new syndrome name, I would go home to Dr. Google and even they would, they would tell me not to. <laughs> so I would consult Dr. Google and Dr. Google would say really horrible things. And so then I would get on the phone and call my cardiologist and or actually my son's cardiologist and say, I don't like that one. Give me another. Um, Cause it had really bad end results. Um, when all was said and done, um, cause they did multiple tests on him after he was born and when all the results came in, it just turned out there were no syndromes he belonged to. There was just no, there was no explanation to what caused his heart defect, except for it just was it something that was a fluke that happened in his development. So that that was a relief to find out he didn't have any of those syndromes because some of them were quite terrifying. Where they, you know, moments after birth he would die, um, type of syndromes. Really, so that was. Yeah, so that's why I say Dr. Google can be terrifying, and my cardiologist hates Dr. Google, but she also <laughs> says it's her job to inform us of the potential issues that you know he may have so that we can be prepared and prepped for it, and so we were prepared for all kinds of different possibilities, and we're relieved that none of those came to fruition for him. Well, it's funny you talk about Dr. Google, WebMD. I went out to... I answered this call from UC health on Facebook for this study of, you know, men of a certain age, certain activity level, this, that, and the other. So I go out there for a blood test and like an hour worth of interview questions. And then two hours later, um, I get an email from the, uh, resident doctor in charge of this program, all asking about, um, you know, frequent urination, this, this, and this getting up in the middle of the night. And I was like, now I just shot back an email. I said, 
I haven't gone to WebMD. I haven't looked at Google. And I was just like, did my blood test come back and, you know, have any, you know, prostate stuff? And she just laughed and she's like, no, no, it's just like a standard question, you know, but um, so, um, but uh, yeah, enough about that. But so, um, yeah, I, I remember when um, my son was, um, or my wife at the time was pregnant with my son and just, man, just living with that uncertainty just of, you know, you know there's a critter in there cause the, the belly's growing, but, and I'm just trying to wrap my head around knowing that something's happening like that. And I, I can't, it's, it was, it was tough enough when things were, and she had preeclampsia and things like that, that she was on bed rest for six weeks, eight weeks. And that was hard enough, but yeah, that's a long time. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, for us, so Grant is our second son. I had, um, Mason before him. In fact, um, Mason was only 15 months old when Grant was born. And when I was pregnant with Mason, Dr. Google actually was my best friend at that point because I ended up having a condition that um, I later discovered is called uh, cholestasis of pregnancy. And it's where the liver stops functioning properly. And how I discovered I had it is I itched from head to toe in my third trimester closer to my due date. And I was probably about 34, 35 weeks um, pregnant when I was just miserably itching. I it was worse at night and my hands and my feet. And I mean, I still have some scars on my hands and feet from scratching so violently. And, um, I would shake the bed where it would wake up my husband and he would turn and say, you know, Hey, are you okay? And I was lathering in lotion. I was bathing in, um, oat soap, (laughs) you know, all kinds of anything that the doctors were telling me. And so I consulted Dr. Google with the symptoms I was having and came up and found out that 1% of the pregnant population has this condition and um and that because it's so rare many doctors have never heard of it and so it recommended that I print off this letter to take with me to my next appointment and thankfully I belong to a, a practice that um they didn't even question me I had the letter prepared to give to them and they just said you know what we're going to test your liver and see if you have this thing and if you do we will you know, do the next steps. And sure enough, I ended up having that condition, was able to take the medications um, to help stop the itching. But because I had the cholestasis of pregnancy, um, they, and the reason why it was so important, I had that letter from Dr. Google is that um, if I were to go full term, I could hemorrhage to death because um, my liver is not functioning properly. So it depletes the vitamin K, which caused the blood to thin. Um, so I could bleed out during delivery and it also causes the baby to often be stillborn. And so it's imperative that the baby is delivered at 37 weeks. And so, like I said, at that time, Dr. Google helped me and uh, saved my life and saved my son who is now 13. Um, so yeah, you never know how Dr. Google is going to be. Dr. <laughs> Google could be terrifying like he was in Grant's case, or he can be very helpful as he was in Mason's case. <laughs> Uh, I am having a, a biophysical reaction to that story about the, <laughs> right. the, yeah, it's like, Oh, I'm starting to you know, elevated heart rate, just hearing it, you know, just as your friend hearing it, you know, 13 years later, it still stresses me out. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What does the liver, why does the liver make you itch? Did you ever get into that? I mean, what happens yeah, there? So what happened with that is um, when the liver stops functioning properly, it causes the bile salts to start to not have a place to go. And so they get into the bud, um, to the bloodstream um, instead of processed the way they're supposed to. And so when those bile salts get into the bloodstream, it's basically poisoning the body. And it literally felt like I had bugs under my skin all the time. It was horrible. Don't wish it on anybody, um, but I'm glad to know that there um, is Dr. Google out there to let people know about ICP. It's uh, enter something cholestasis of pregnancy, and that there's a Facebook page out there to help the moms that have that condition and the support that they need to get to the doctors to help them do what they have to, so that they do not have a stillborn child. Because I actually have a coworker. I found out years later that had the same condition and she wasn't fortunate like me and did not know she had it. And her son was stillborn as a result. I know it's terrible. It's just tragic. But yeah, so here I am, I'm thinking 37 weeks is my cook time because Mason was 37 weeks because of ICP. Grant was 37 weeks because of um, low amniotic fluid that when I had my third son, I was convinced I was having him at 37 weeks. And when he went 39 weeks, I just thought that was abnormal to be normal. <laughs> <laughs> I got plans. Get that baby out. <laughs> right? Like, what do you mean I have to wait two weeks? They all come out at 37. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, all, all due respect to the moms out there. I, um, uh, yeah, men men couldn't handle giving birth. I could tell you that much right now. <laughs> no, let alone C-sections because of the cholestasis. I had a C-section with Mason. So then each pregnancy afterwards, they said, you know, you can have a vaginal delivery, but if you do, you must sign away your uterus because it could implode upon delivery and we're not going to be at fault if you make this decision. So I said, you know what, just insert a zipper and let's just get them out that way. And so I had repeat C-sections for all three of my children. So I have no idea what a vaginal delivery feels like. No clue. <laughs> so I feel for all the moms that have to push and have labor um, and have all those sensations that follow from that. I just know what it's like to, you know, sneeze and cough after a C-section and feel like your entire gut's on fire. <laughs> Did you see that commercial um, around the Super Bowl? And um, it was for kind of like um, uh, a ship sunshine box for new moms that I think the, the network actually banned it, but it was just, yeah, I did see it. Um, and I yeah. can't relate with those moms that, you know, have that swollen um, soreness in their nether regions. I just know what it, like I said, to feel a burning sensation across my gut when I sneeze or cough after um, having my children until the incision healed. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just thought that was important. I watched it a couple of times because even, you know, experiencing it and you know, first and twice, I thought it was just important to have that perspective and just remember oh, that yeah. that's something that, and, and this is not me trying to say how enlightened I am. I was just like, okay. You oh, know, shoot, it enlightened wanna... me because I've, I've not experienced that. But I remember my friend who had her son a few months after I had Mason and she had the vaginal delivery and she was like, did you have to sit on a donut? Did you have to, you know, have an ice pack? And I'm like, no. I'm like, did you? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, maybe the C-section's better. 
<laughs> so I got lucky. I mean, I know a lot of moms who have not been as fortunate with their C-sections and have lots of terrible pain and difficulty recovering. Fortunately for me, despite all the other issues I had, the C-section recovery was a piece of cake. Good. Good. Um, okay. So back to Grant. So four days old, he had open heart surgery, which I couldn't imagine waiting for that or being the doctor experiencing that. But then, you know, what happens after that? Well, yeah. So he had his open heart surgery. It ended up taking longer. So that was nerve wracking. Um, but we had, we were very fortunate. We had friends and family, you know, waiting with us and, um, you know, supporting us while we were waiting for him to come out of recovery. When he did, they um, told us that his heart was actually more unique than they thought. Um, in fact, I remember hearing the lead surgeon saying it was the most unique case of coarctation he'd ever experienced in his 20 plus years of doing surgeries. So I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, we like to be unique in our family, so might as well be <laughs> unique there too. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, and they, uh, um, you know, they had a couple holes in his heart that they told us that they had found. And so they sutured those and, um, you know, uh, but he started doing really well during his recovery. In fact, um, he had lots of tubes sticking out of him. He was on a vent, um, he had a ventilator tent over him, which looked like a little wire frame wrapped in saran wrap sitting over and um, giving him the oxygen. And um, they told us he was one of the healthiest babies in the NICU. And yeah, and I thought, wow, you've, he's got six different things. And they said, oh yeah, this thing can hold up to 12. I was like, wow. Um, and then he, he actually, they, you know, over the next um, several days, they started weaning him off of a lot of the stuff. So he was off of the ventilation tent rather quickly and just put on um, oxygen. And then I want to say when he was seven days old, um, he got released from the NICU and got put down into a step-down unit, which was the cardiac intensive care unit instead of the neonatal intensive care unit. And um, in that step-down unit, um, you know, he doesn't, he got his own private room. And um, so I got to be with them. So I was with him the entire time. I have not left the hospital. I even rode with, I actually had him delivered at one hospital. Um, because the hospital he was going to have a surgery at didn't have a maternity board at that time. And so I rode in an ambulance with him when I was 12 hours after having abdominal surgery to get him out. And I can remember um, wherever they took him for tests and when they moved him to his new room, you know, I'm following along and the nurses would look at his chart and say, honey, you had major abdominal surgery. What are you doing up and about? I said, I'm going wherever my kid goes. <laughs> um, I'm not letting him out of my sight, you know, and the, he just had major heart surgery. Um, and so, yeah, um, so he started, he was thriving very well um, at this point. Um, they're trying to introduce, um, me breastfeeding him, but he wasn't really taking, um, taking to it. And they think it was due to some of the medications were making it a little difficult for him to grasp. So they decided it would be better to, um, have him have a feeding tube inserted. So, um, they put in a feeding tube and they try to do it at the bedside, um, because that was standard practice then, and is to um, blindly place the tube down his nose. And then, um, but as they were do doing it, they were struggling. And the nurse, um, you know, she kept trying. And then finally she said, you know, I don't want to hurt him. So we're going to have to do this under x-ray. 
which is, I think is an anatomy is a little off and it's causing the tube to go down, um, you know, be a challenge to get down in the proper place. So I followed them um, to the x-ray room and got to, you know, they put all the gear on me to be able to sit next to them while they did it, um, placed the tube under x-ray and um, got it placed. And they decided because he also had some reflux, they were going to put it past his stomach a little bit. So they call that transpyloric where the feeding tube goes just past the stomach. So if there's any reflux, it goes into the stomach and not the esophagus. And, um, and then he got, you know, put back in his room and they started the feeds and he was doing well with um, those feeds. And then um, it was about the ninth day. Um, he was, his pulse ox was fluctuating and other than that, he was doing really well, um, except for he also, I guess, was a little jaundiced. So the nurse said, you know, we're going to get some belly rubin lights. So they brought those up. And I remember he just loved being in those belly rubin lights because whenever we would change his diaper and have to open the blanket, that was the only time he ever fussed. As soon as you close the, you know, put the diaper on and closed his blankets and wrapped him up nice and warm, he was very content and happy again, despite the fact that he was recovering from open heart surgery. So under the belly Rubin lights, you know, he's just sitting there sunbathing. He's got these little <laughs> goggles on to protect his eyes from the lights. <laughs> and he just A little speedo. so chill. <laughs> he did. He looked so content, just soaking up their sun. I, you know, figured he's going to be a sun baby and uh, probably the only member of the family that would get tan because the rest of us just fry in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so then, um, so he's under the belly Rubin lights, he's doing well, but then his pulse ox is fluctuating and the nurse that was on duty that day wasn't comfortable with how much it was fluctuating. And like I said, that was really the only thing um, that was kind of different was that, you know, his the oxygen levels were, they're supposed to stay at 90 or above and they kept bouncing down in the eighties and stuff. So she, um, and maybe even lower, I can't remember, but, uh, she decided to, um, have an x-ray done and I'm really glad she did because it turned out his left lung had collapsed and was causing him to have a difficult time breathing. So no wonder his pulse ox was going up and down. So, um, they then put him on a CPAP machine. And uh, so then at this point, now he looks like he's snorkeling in bed uh, <laughs> with the little machine on. Um, it did its job. And the next day, he, um, the CPAP machine was removed because it inflated his lung again. And he was breathing on regular oxygen at that point. And uh, so he was doing really well um, and continuing to thrive. He's doing well on the feeds. Um, from the NG tube that they've put in him. And then fast forward, it's now Saturday and it's the weekend. And um, the morning nurse comes in and she said, you know, I'm not comfortable with the feeding tube that he has. I don't think he needs to have a transplant tube anymore. She said, so I'm gonna get the doctor to approve me putting just a regular feeding tube in. So a regular feeding tube just goes straight into the stomach instead of past it. And so she start, proceeds to start feeding that feeding tube into his other nostril while leaving the transpyloric one in the nostril that it had been placed into. And as she's doing it, I'm telling her that, you know, um, hey, the nurses that did the other one, they did it under x-ray. Because um, at the time, I thought that was the way you were supposed to do it. I didn't know that it's pretty standard for people to place feeding tubes at the side of the bed. And she said... Um, 
she said, oh, okay, well, I've, I've done these a lot. I'm not going to have a problem putting it in. I said, okay, and uh, proceed to watch her struggle. And, uh, you know, she's having a difficult time. And so I asked her, I said, well, once you get it in there, how are you going to know it's placed correctly? And she says, well, once I get it in, I'm going to pull out a, I'm going to put a burst of air in there and you'll hear a bubble sound. And when you hear that bubble sound in the stethoscope, you'll know that it's in the right position. And then I asked her, I said, well, wouldn't it make that sound elsewhere in our body? I said, and she says, well, it can. And that's why we take fluid out. If we get fluid in the tube, then we know it's in the stomach. And I said, well, aren't we mostly made of water? Couldn't that fluid be from anywhere in our body? And then the nurse proceeded to remind me that she'd been doing this for 20 years and that I will probably actually go home learning how to do it myself because oftentimes children will pull their tubes out and parents have to reinsert them at home. I thought, oh, that's scary. After watching them doing it under x-ray and then watching her struggle at the bedside, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to learn how to do this and do it safely and successfully for my kid. So... She places a tube in finally. She um, let me listen through the stethoscope. I heard the pop of air. I, she pulled the fluid out. I saw there was fluid in the tube. And then she went off to take care of her other patients. And at this point, Grant is starting to kind of be a little agitated. And he starts blowing milky white bubbles. And um, a couple hours later, they get big enough where I actually called the nurse and said, you know, he's not ever done this before. And there was a different nurse that came in because um, the nurse who placed the tube was on break. And so this um, break nurse comes in and she suctions um, his mouth out. And uh, he seems to, you know, do better and be a little more content, but still somewhat agitated. Um, and so at this point, Rich has come and said, you know, hey, you haven't been away from the hospital for a while. Why don't we grab lunch? And my parents had come. And he says, you know, your parents are here um, visiting with Grant. You know, why don't we take a break? So it's the first time in 11 days I've left the hospital outside of the ambulance right to get to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Because otherwise I've been there 24-7, thankful that there have been other people to help Rich take care of our 15-month-old um, while I'm at the hospital dealing with our newborn. And when we came back... Um, in fact, while we were gone, um, I remember we went to Whole Foods and I got a little chair massage and got something to eat. And then we came back and my parents said that, you know, Grant had been uh, really agitated and that they had um, and was blowing bubbles again and called the nurse and had the nurse come in and suction him out. And the nurse that came just said, oh, he's a fussy baby. And uh, my parents are thinking not generally. The only time he's fussy is when he's getting his diaper changed. And uh, so we just made note of that. And uh, then I had some friends that came to visit after my parents left. And uh, they came to meet Grant for the first time and visited with them for, you know, a brief bit. And then they went home. And then at this point, Grant is really starting to blow a lot more bubbles. His color is really gray. And um, so we called the nurse in. And at the time she came in, it was time for him to have another feed and some other stuff done with his meds. And so she's messing around with his med machine and the feeding machine. And Rich is holding him and says, you know, he's really turning gray. And she says, all right, well, let me finish put, um, putting in his feed and then I'll take a look. And so she pushes his feed and then his lips turn blue. 
And so we called that to the attention of the nurse. And so then she panics and run, um, runs over to get a suction thing. And it was a humongous suction thing that she starts suctioning. We said, oh, you know, when they suctioned him earlier, they used a different type of tube and did it in his mouth. And so she went and got that and suctioned him out. And um, he still was not doing well. And so she hit a call light and uh, called for the nurse to charge nurse to come in. Well, the person who answered thought it was me asking for a nurse. And they said, well, we'll get your nurse. And then she shouts, no, I am the nurse. I need the charge nurse. And then she hollered at me to run out into the hall and go ask for help. So I ran out into the hall and screamed at the top of my lungs, please help. My child's turning blue. I need help. And then I immediately hear paged over the intercom code blue to his room. And I watched 20 people rush inside to start giving him aid and start working on him. And at this moment, we still have Mason, our 15-month-old, with us. So a nurse takes him, waves the room, and Rich and I just stood there as we watched everybody in the medical field that came to the room surround his bed and start trying to revive him. They're doing chest compressions. They're you know, flipping back his head to look inside his mouth and then um, feeding tube and they're trying to um, intubate him. And then there's a nurse that um, pulled us to the side and she's basically giving us the play-by-play of everything that's taking place in front of our eyes so that we can understand what it is they're trying to do to resuscitate him. And then I see the doctor that's up at his head. Look at us. And then she starts to call and I plead with her and I begged her, please don't stop. Keep trying. And so they do. She gave me really sad eyes and they'd continue to chest compressions, but I can see that everybody is kind of the heightened frenzy that was there before is missing. And they're just going through the motions just to appease two desperate parents that don't want to acknowledge that their son has just died before their eyes. And so eventually around nine o'clock they call it and they said that he's passed away and Rich and I completely collapsed and just sobbed. I have no idea how long we laid there on the floor holding each other in tears and desperation and disbelief of what had just happened because our son had been thriving and we had been told that morning that he was going to be going home in a couple days. And then by that evening, he died right in front of us. And we've got no idea why. Well, eventually we pick ourselves up off the floor. A nurse comes in to help clean us up and uh, asks us to let us know when we're ready to hear the doctors tell us what their thoughts are. So we sat there for a while, and then we let her know that we were ready. And two doctors came into the room. It was a blonde doctor and a brunette doctor is all I can remember. And they sat down with us and told us that they believed that the nurse had put the feeding tube and pierced his trach and fed it into his lung and, and instead of into his stomach. And I asked her, how could that be? And they said, well, we're not sure. And I, I remember... So well, I want an autopsy and I don't want you guys to do it. I want an outside party to do it. It's amazing how you, even though in your devastation, you could have moments of clarity 
to ask and make demands of certain things. And so we did have an autopsy done. And we did later find that that autopsy said that the feeding tube had indeed gone through his trachea and into his lungs and had caused cardiac arrest. And so his, his death certificate says he died from a heart attack caused by fluid in his lungs that was caused by the feeding tube being incorrectly placed into his lungs. And uh, I remember after them delivering that news to us that, you know, they believed that it was the feeding tube being misplaced. I remember having the then at that moment call all of our family members to tell them that, you know, their grandchild, their niece, their nephew, um, who has been doing fine up to that point had just died and to come and say their goodbyes. Um, and it was one of the hardest phone calls I've ever had to make. And then I remember that I told them another moment of clarity. I said, I want pictures. And uh, they told me a nurse could come in and take pictures. And I said, no, I want a professional. And uh, there's an organization called the Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep organization, where it's a group of professional photographers who volunteer their time to go and take pictures of children that are dying so that parents um, or who have died so that parents can have pictures of their child without being on all the feeding tubes and medical apparatuses that are attached to them. It could just be them holding their child in a pure state. And incidentally, the man who came, and he came around 11 o'clock after all our family had arrived, and his name was Grant. I thought it was oh, kind of, geez. yeah, it was kind of like one of those goosebumps goosebump moments when, um, so he did, he came in and he took pictures of us um, all sitting around with Grant. And um, then after he left, um, our family started to leave and um, we eventually, um, you know, were left alone with Grant to make our final goodbyes with him. And I remember um, when, it, you know, as they were cleaning him up, you know, the nurses asked if we wanted to hold his hands and feet while they did that. And uh, one of them said, you know, one of the nurses here knows how to make casts of, you know, baby's hands and feet. Would you like that? And I said, yeah, we would definitely like to have that memento um, since, you know, at this point, we only have 11 days of memories with Grant. And so the nurse came in and she started making the plaster mold of Grant's hand and they had to stick his hand into the little um, Dixie cup with the stuff in it. And I remember when they pulled his hand out, I wish I had kept that plaster of Paris mold because Grant was flipping the nurses off. <laughs> he had the final word. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> he was like, F you, nurses. <laughs> so he did have the final word. And um and then they did um they did make some proper ones, and those are the ones we still have <laughs> in a nice little dust-free curio case in our office. And um, you know, when when we left, um we still, you know, when we left the hospital and went home, you know, it was all a blur. In fact, I don't, I don't even remember who, um, you know, someone that had, one of our family members that had come to say goodbye to Grant took Mason home with them. To this day, maybe I should ask my family, who did take him? Because I don't remember. 
But uh, Rich and I went home alone. And the next day, you know, friends and family all came to share their condolences with us. And, um, you know, but we got to thinking, you know, why did this happen? And how could this be prevented? But it was kind of a distant thought because really the first thoughts were, how do we plan a funeral for an infant? And what does that cost? Because we already have medical bills coming in that we have no idea of what open heart surgery is going to cost. We have no idea what the, you know, transport from the ambulance from one hospital to the other is going to cost. And, you know, so we have all these bills coming up. We did send out an email to all our friends and family and said, in lieu of sending flowers to the funeral, could you send the money to us to help pay for the funeral? Um, we went to the mortuary um, to go decide, do we want to have them in a casket? Do we want to have them cremated? Um, we decided to have him cremated because we didn't know where we would be in our future and we didn't want him to be in a state by himself if we had to move for any reason. And so I remember um, when we went to the mortuary, we found out that um, people who lose children get a discount because mortuaries fill for families that lose their children too soon. And uh, so it's always too soon. Well, definitely. But um, if you're an adult, you're full price. If you're a child, you get a discount. And uh, But we didn't like the urns that they had at the mortuary. They were really old and boring and ugly. And um, so we started doing some internet searches. And I will tell you that Grant's urn is a dog ash keepsake box <laughs> that we found at a pet cemetery. <laughs> that um they now use for humans <laughs> after we explained what we wanted <laughs> so um ordered the box and it came with a uh, tile plate that generally they carve a picture of the dog in but for us they carved a picture of our son and uh that we had a photographer crop the picture and um have put on of grants and so our urn is a big wood box that has the tile picture of on him um, you know, through our friend network, um, found someone that would engrave the box. So on the outside, it says Grant Lars Vischer, and it has his birth date and death date, and it says in our hearts forever. When you open the inside, which is the keepsake part, um, there's a the um, song, um, the lyrics of a song called Precious Child that we had engraved into the box. And then inside are all the things that we had gathered in 11 days of his life, you know, lock of hair, his medical bracelets, the little hats that they had on him at the hospital, you know, pictures, the CDs that um, had all the pictures that the Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep photographer took, all the pictures that all our families had taken during his 11 days of life. Um, all those things sit inside that little um, box that sits beside my bed and on Rich's side of the bed is a picture of Grant when he was alive and in our bedroom are the only pictures that you'll ever see of Grant to know that you know he was around because we want him to be a part of our family but we also don't necessarily want to make people sad when they ask questions about you know what's this third child I never see and so he lives in our bedroom and um but as we're dealing with all this um you know, people are being so generous and so helpful. Um, but every time they look at us, they're giving us those really sad eyes. Um, 
And it just, every time we would get those sad eyes, Rich and I would just be gutted and sobbing and knew that we just could not go forward with that. And so we did what I later found out, and it was years later that I found out there's a term for it. We went on a griefcation. That's where you escape your lives after the death of a loved one and you take a vacation, but it's a griefcation because you're not really celebrating, you're escaping, you're running away from your life to just be able to breathe and not have to think um, beyond that moment. So we went to Puerto Rico and uh, in doing that, we thought, oh, well, we had this 50-month-old son that, do you have to have shots to go to Puerto Rico? I mean, we don't know. We're naive. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we, uh, we just knew you didn't need to have a passport. And it was the farthest place we could go without getting a passport um, for Mason. Because Rich and I had a passport, but Mason didn't. So um, we're like, where could we go to be far away from anyone who knows us and um, not require a passport? So we go to the pediatrician. And while we were with the pediatrician, of course, you know, she's asking what happened. You know, and uh, so we tell her the story. And she said, you know, my husband's an attorney and he interned at a law firm. and that was medical malpractice. If, you know, if you think about it, you might want to call this number. So she gave us a lawyer number. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I had a C-section and so I still had to have post-operative care. And when I was at the OB, of course, they're asking me what happened and um, explain the story. And uh, they said, you know, that's medical malpractice. You might want to call a lawyer. And they gave me a business card. It's the same lawyer as the pediatrician. Well, my sister is also a nurse at that time, and she was telling Grant's story um, to her coworkers. And one of the anesthesiologists she works with said, "You know, that's medical malpractice. They, your family, you know, your sister might want to contact a lawyer. I know this guy, and here's the number. It's the same one as the other two doctors. So we kind of believe in the power of three. That if three different doctors from different medical practices give you the same lawyer and say this is malpractice you might want to investigate it so we did we contacted the lawyer and uh, told them our situation and they did agree that that was definitely medical malpractice and then something that could be prevented and so rich and i talked and we said you know we want to pursue with a lawyer um, not to make, gain money but to make it legal that the hospital would have to change their practices because we started doing research at this time and found out that if the nurse had used a pH strip and tested the fluid she had pulled out of Grant's NG tube, that he could be, he would probably be with us today because the, the um, pH would have shown the wrong balance and would have been an indicator to the nurse that the placement was incorrect. And um, so we did work with the lawyers. They, um, worked with the hospital and we came to an agreement with the hospital that um, they would make changes with their NG2 policy. And um, so they, you know, so they signed that we made the agreement and, um, and then we walked away and it wasn't until I had Liam and Liam had surpassed Grant in days of life. And it really had me thinking a lot about Grant and then got me wondering, well, and, Grant was born in 2008. Liam was born in 2011. So here it is three years later. And I'm wondering, did the hospital really do the changes they promised? 
how can I find out? How do I know that they really did do what they say they were going to do? Who is that check and balance? I don't know. So I called the hospital, set up an appointment with their risk manager, because that was the person we were in contact with, the lawyer. She scheduled a meeting for me to come in. And I remember bringing Liam with me to the meeting and sitting there with the risk manager and two nurses. And they went over Grant's case with me. And they proceeded to tell me about the things that they learned um, from his death and what they learned about their policies and procedures that needed to be investigated and changed. And that going forward, that if there's ever any struggle, it will always be validated with an x-ray, like the first feeding tube was. If it goes in without struggle, it will be validated with a pH strip to verify that it has the right acidic level to make sure that placement is correct because the feeding tube is done blindly. They don't see where it's going. And so these two forms of measurement will verify that it's correct. And so they were telling me about these changes and I said, well, has it worked? And they said, well, we know at this time, and this is 2011, that they had saved at least four babies' lives that they're aware of. And so I was ecstatic. And then I got to thinking, how do I make that number bigger? Um, or it's great, but that's not enough. And uh, so then I reached back to the hospital a couple weeks later, and they put me in touch with their chief medical officer who had just started um, at the hospital, um, you know, maybe a year before. So he had come after Grant had passed and, um, and he was making a lot of changes in the hospital for transparency. And he invited me to sit on several different types of committees and went over, he met me for lunch, went over them all and said, you pick which one you want to be a part of. And so, um, in 2011, I joined the patient safety, um, committee at the hospital. And I have been sitting on that committee once a month ever since then, being the parental voice um, to ask questions and to raise concerns on things that they share. Um, and it's been very rewarding because they implemented a program several years ago, I think it's about five years ago, called Target Zero, where it's, um, their goal is zero harm. And when they implemented that program, they did a a whole education training course for all the staff at the hospital. And so the patient safety committee um, one day went through, we all divide and conquered throughout the hospital and picked different units to go and inquire with the staff if they'd heard about the program, um, if they had, had they taken the program yet, if they did take the program, what did they think about it? And so we were making, um, one of the other um, medical staff members of the committee and I, we walked around um, one of the units and um, asked these questions. And then I noticed that there's a baby on a feeding tube. So of course that gets my interest up. And I start asking the nurse some very leading questions about the feeding tube and how did she know it was placed right? And I keep asking her all these questions. And so she's answering and she's telling me exactly what the protocol is. And, you know, but I keep pushing until finally the nurse says, well, you know, there are several years ago, we had a little boy that was born that needed a feeding tube and the nurse put it in incorrectly and it caused him to die. And that's why we changed our policies and procedures and why we do things the way we do it now. And I looked at her and I said, thank you for telling my story back to me. I'm the mom that you're talking about. 
And the nurse totally burst into tears because she felt like she had harmed me in sharing this story. And I told her, I said, don't cry. I said, you have validated that sharing his story makes a difference and that the staff understand why the policy changed. Because after I started on the patient safety committee, I told them, please use Grant. Actually, after we worked with the lawyers, I said, please use Grant's story. And here's a picture of him to say why you're making these changes. So it was very validating to have that story come right back at me and validate that having his story shared does make a difference and it helps people understand why they do the things they do. Wow. <clears throat> um, you know, I've, I've known you and Rich, I think probably 10, 12 years and I've known of this story, but I don't, I know you've never shared it with me in this level of detail. And, um, I'm just honored that you did and it's so impactful and I'm just trying to think of, you know, just, um, I think your bravery is first and foremost and the way that you didn't let the darkness of this consume you guys, I think is one of the first things I want to say. And I'm, I'm struggling at, I'm rarely at a loss for words when I talk to somebody, but, um, no, I totally just, understand what you're saying. Cause many times I share this story with nursing students at the university of Northern Colorado. And as soon as I'm done talking, it's always quiet. And so I always say, Do you have questions, need tissue. And it usually gets them to start kind of laughing and it breaks the ice. And then the questions kind of come where, you know, they, they'll ask me, you know, like, how did it impact my relationship with my husband? You know, cause as you said, you know, people can go to that dark place where it pushes them apart instead of together. And I'm rich and I are very fortunate that, you know, we're, it brought us together as opposed to apart. It also, um, you know, has pushed me to want to make change so that no other family has to suffer what our family did because of a medical error, especially one that is preventable. And so, you know, in addition to being part of the patient safety committee, I joined another committee um, called the Novel Project, where they focus and specialize just in trying to find the gold standard for feeding tube placement verification. So I sit with a group of national, um, a national committee, and actually it's international now, of medical professionals that are working to find even better innovative ways to verify feeding tube placement. Right now, all of our gold standard studies and evidence-based practice say pH strip, um, and if there's struggle, to use the x-ray. And in that pursuit of us trying to find um, technology to help test for that, um, we came across um, a gentleman who um, has a device that he was prototyping in the U.S. He's actually in the U.K. And um, so when he was prototyping it at the hospital to show what he is, you know, creating for this issue um, and wanted to get it in front of nurses to get their feedback. And so the hospital invited me to sit there. And so that's how I met um, this gentleman. And he remembered me. And so a couple years later, um, he reached out to me and said he had been at a conference um, for the um, that 
works on medical devices and innovations and stuff, and they champion medical issues. And they're called the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. And so they will take, um, they will have a conference and then people get to pitch medical safety issues to them. And then they take a vote and then they pick the top three or five, depending on, um, you know, how many they're taking on that year. And then they, they go around it where they, they get an entire committee to champion that issue and solve the problem for it. And so um, he asked me if I'd be willing to go to their um, summer conference in Washington, D.C. And so I said, sure. So that was two years ago. And I brought the nurse who I had met um, when Liam was born and had told me about um, all the changes that they had met at, uh, made at the hospital. And so, um, and I didn't know her very well, but, you know, she came to represent the hospital and what the hospital did to make change. I was there to give the human side of the story. And then he was there to, you know, support that he knew this organization and, um, you know, help us navigate it. And so the three of us converged in Washington, D.C. And, um, and then at the end of the conference, when it was the time to pitch ideas, I pitched my idea and the nurse shared what the hospital had done. And then, um, you know, other people made their pitches and then they took a vote and um, they announced to us that our story was the number one pick to champion. And so they, today I'll tell you, there's a thing called apps number 15 that the patient safety movement foundation has published and um, anyone in the medical industry can um, get that apps and adopt it into their organizations for the proper evidence-based practices um, for feeding tube placement verification. And um, when they championed it, they invited us to go to their next conference to introduce that app and my story and so rich and i got to go to england two years ago and i remember share. that seeing that on facebook yeah, yeah. right yes yeah, so we got to go and share his story um internationally so that's the first time i took his story international <laughs> and um but yeah um you know any way i'm able to share a story to make change and to make a difference you know, I'm willing to go out there and do it because it's important for the medical industry to hear that there is a better way to test feeding tube um, placement. And when I talk to the nurses, one of the things I tell them, I said, you know, not only did Grant die because of feeding tube misplacement, but he also died because they didn't have the they didn't have the nurse um, and parent engagement. We were not a team working to, um, you know, make sure that Grant went through, you know, his care safely. And because that nurse didn't partner with us, she missed out on a lot of information that we had to share. Like, hey, he had, you know, the previous feeding tube was under x-ray. You know, did you hear me tell you that? You know, do you see it in his chart? You know, do you understand that this is not his normal behavior? He's not a fussy baby that, you know, this is not normal behavior for him. And that, you know, guy, he's been blowing these bubbles all day long. And, you know, guy, if he's blowing bubbles and he's discolored, should you really be pushing a feed at that moment? Or should you stop what you're doing, take a breath and listen to us and look to see what's going on before you follow through with your to-do list? If they had partnered with us, he probably could still be here alive today, even though that tube had been misplaced. But nobody caught that misplacement all day long. 
12 hours or, you know, eight to 12 hours, you know, he'd been like, so that's why I share his story because even people who don't have NG tubes, they can hear the story and know that, you know, if you partner with your medical professionals, you can make a great team and have good outcomes. But if you don't partner together, you can have bad outcomes. Well, it, it's such a simple thing as you describe it, just to listen. Right. And I've talked about this before when I've looked at, um, I've read books called deep survival about, um, disasters out you know, on, on mountaintops and things like that. And also in the, the checklist manifesto, which there was a doctor that it looked at, um, I guess is the mortality rates and ERs and like why mistakes were happening. And mm-hmm. it's just, what is the circumstance? The, the, the reality has changed and pay attention to the new reality and just take a minute and, and pay attention exactly. and change. If the, if the information that you're seeing is not matching the, the mental map, um, have you, have you ever talked to that nurse? Have you ever spoken to her, emailed? You don't have to answer. You know, that's, no, no, that's a good question. And it's ones that, you know, a lot of times the, nur- the nurses, I, uh, nursing students I speak to will ask. And it's a good question. It's a fair question. And um, at first, no. Um, I mean, I will tell you that when, um, when we worked with the lawyers, one of the things I demanded was an apology. Um, and, and instead of an apology, we got sympathy cards, which infuriated me, but in hindsight, um, it was probably because there was a lawsuit pending, um, and they were afraid of their jobs if they had any acknowledgement of wrongdoing. And so they gave us sympathy cards. Um, and then in later years, um, after working at the, you know, volunteering at the hospital and the patient safety committee, and speaking to the nursing students, I got to thinking that, you know, maybe I should reach out to her and see, you know, and let her know that I do forgive her. I, I know that she did not walk into that hospital and say that morning, I think I'll kill a baby today. But she walked into that hospital with the best intent, thinking I'm going to do the best I can for the children in my care. And just unfortunately, she made a medical mistake that cost a child in her care, his life. And it happened to be my son. And, um, she, I do know, you know, there's, there's people who know people who know people. And so I actually know someone, um, that told me that that nurse actually was ready to quit her job, even though she'd been a nurse for, she was a senior nurse with over 20 years experience, um, that his death had devastated her so much. She was willing to walk away and never practice again. But fortunately, the hospital has a good program to support their staff and to help them navigate, you know, the grief and loss when they're, you know, someone dies at an error that they have made. And so she continued to practice. Um, And I did try reaching out to her. Um, I didn't have a good way except for um, I knew what her license number was. So I looked it up in Dora and, um, and Dora had also gave me, um, where, what city she lived in. So I did my little Google directory research and, uh, got her phone number and 
then thought, okay, a caller, that's going to be kind of really weird. You know, what do you say? Hi, my name's Deanna Vischer, and in 2008, you killed my baby, and I'd like to talk to you. Um, <laughs> you know, Maybe it um, wouldn't lead with that. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's kind of, um, I did get yeah. her machine, and so when I got her answering machine, it was like, um, hi, my name's Deanna Vischer. I don't know if you remember me, but um, you took care of my son years ago, and I'd like to talk to you. I didn't get a phone call back. Um, she probably did remember my name and thought, I ain't calling that lady. Um, so then I did work with the hospital and said, you know, I'm sure you guys have a way to reach out to her. I would like to tell her that I forgive her and know that she did not mean to kill Grant. And I want to give her that peace to know that I, you know, there's forgiveness for her. And um, I could tell you the hospital did reach out. The hospital did ask me not to call her anymore. Apparently she did get my message. Um, but they said, please don't reach out to her. She's not ready. So it's been 12 years. She's still not ready. Um, she is so gutted from it that she she can't even hear me. In the hospital, I'm sure told her, you know, she's not calling to be upset with you. She's calling to forgive you, but she's just not able to hear that from me. So if she hears this podcast, I hope she knows. I do forgive her. I would, that would be amazing if that happened. Um, how long and what were your steps to reach forgiveness? What did you do? I think I, I didn't really do anything. I think in, you know, I was definitely angry in the beginning. Um, I was scared navigating, um, you know, the patient advocacy arena. Um, so at first when I started being a patient advocate, you know, I was pretty quiet. Um, and some of the, um, committees that I um, first sat in on, um, the patient safety committee being the major one I did, um, that one, I did find out that apparently I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when it came to float nurses, because it was a float nurse. That was the nurse in the evening that pushed the last feed that killed Grant. And so I was really upset with the hospital for, I felt like one of the other holes that they had was that they hadn't educated their float nurses on the different um, areas that they were covering well enough because that nurse should have known that there was an emergency call light in Grant's room and she used the regular call light and, you know, she should have been um, more grounded to not be mistaken as me and should have been identified as the nurse that was trying to get help. And I shouldn't have had to run out in the hall and make that plea. Um, you know, so I, apparently I was pretty upset with float nurses because, um, whenever there were any discussions about float nurses, apparently I had a tone because I did get pulled aside one time <laughs> <laughs> and, um, the chief medical officer pulled me aside and said, Hey, um, it's been brought to our attention that some people are feeling uncomfortable whenever we talk about float nurses because you get a tone. And I said, oh, I get a tone? They're like, yeah, you get a tone. And I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. It's totally subconscious. I will do better not to have a tone when we're talking about float nurses. And um, so they brought the person who was a float nurse and representing the float nurses to meet with me. And so I did tell them, I said, I am so sorry. It's not my intent to be bitchy. I will do better. Um, and he totally understood. And um, I will tell you to this day, that guy is one of the, my biggest champions for the NG tube. He, 
there's a special committee at the hospital right now where they're doing a special kind of research on how to report misplaced feeding tubes and he volunteered to be on that subcommittee and um so apparently i have gotten the the tone out and um people understand that i'm just i'm just very passionate <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i've had to tell people look i'm not yelling at you i'm just yelling <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a big difference well, well totally mm. well and you know sometimes people ask me well you know how is it for you when your kids get hurt now where do you take them or what do you do and like when liam was born you know i i knew i was going to be terrified to have liam out of my sight um because within my sight grant died you know so um the idea that liam would be taken after birth away from me terrified me and so i remember when we went in to you know have liam i told the nurses i said hey ladies i just need to let you know something i said I might come off bitchy um, and angry and I might look like I'm watching it like a hawk because I am, but here's the reason. And then I tell him my, I told him my story and said, I think I have a label across my forehead that, you know, comes as a warning that says, you know, I had this medical error. I will be a raving bitch if I see you doing anything that makes me doubt you. And, um, you know, and I will say the nurses when Liam was delivered were phenomenal and they really heard me. And so they made sure that I was a part of everything that was going on with Liam. He had a very normal delivery. There was nothing wrong with him, but just doing you know, the regular stuff that they do. They made sure I was very informed and a part of it. And, you know, when um, both my kids, uh, Mason and Liam, have both broken their collarbones, they both have had stitches in their head. And, um, you know, the broken collarbones, you know, we took them to children's hospital. Um, Cause also, you know, some people say you would still take your kids there. And I said, well, I think there's a special flag in my file that says this already happened. So don't make another mistake. Um, <laughs> because we've always had good care. <laughs> and uh, you know, in, in all honesty, you know, for rich, um, it was very conflicting emotions for him because Children's Hospital saved his life when he was in high school because he had leukemia and they cured his cancer. And, you know, he's around today, you know, being a father of two very healthy boys and uh, having a very active lifestyle, you know, and when we had Grant and Children's Hospital killed him, you know, he was very conflicted because they saved his life but killed his son. And I'll tell you, for a year, we couldn't even drive past the hospital. You know, so it's very oh, surprising sure. that, yeah, so it's very surprising. I find myself, you know, I go there all the time and it's, it's not, it's not an issue for me anymore. It's, it's cathartic because like I said, I get to share Grant's story. I get to give his death meaning and purpose and I get to validate that there were lessons to be learned and that um, change can happen. And our story is exactly that. It's proof that you can work with the hospitals and the medical professionals when an error has occurred and you can make change and you can make improvement and you can be the difference that saves lives going forward. I can't think of a, a better ending than that. And just <laughs> other than to just compliment you again. And I know it wasn't easy, but you in hearing the story um, and the, the details of it, 
touched on some of my greatest fears that I've had for, you know, my son's 22, but starting it, you know, 23 years ago before he was even born and to just wonder if I would be strong enough to react and stay positive the way that you did. And just to look at you as, um, just a, a bright light in the midst of the most incredible darkness that well, thank you. It was an I honor to as, hear this story. Well, thanks. Yeah. I look at it as, um, one, we had a 15 month old that I needed, we needed to be there for him and be there for each other. And that, um, I, I find for myself that nothing good happens when you dwell and, um, wallow and that it's better to put your foot forward, your chin up and just try to be the difference that will improve things going forward. Fantastic philosophy for sure. Well, thanks. And thank you for having me on your show. Well, you're so welcome. And I, I mean this sincerely. It's an honor. I know you've told it at conferences and, um, we've been friends for a long time and, and to hear it in, in this way, it, I just want you to know how much I, I sincerely appreciate you sharing it one-to-one. Um, I don't know if that's easier for you or harder for you, but it, it's definitely um, impactful to me and I can't thank you enough for, for doing it. Oh, you're very welcome. And it doesn't matter the size of the audience. It's, it's always emotional, but I'm glad it's impactful. It is. Um, where could people find out, you know, in the, in the, in the terrible event that they've experienced, you know, something like this, how could they get involved to you know, impact patient safety or where would you steer people for help or to make a difference? What would you suggest? I tell them that, um, you know, it depends on, if they're if they're able to work with the professionals that had done the harm, um, if they're able to do that, I would definitely recommend that they work with that organization and tell them that they want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, and they want to make sure that changes go you know are implemented um, for better safety practices. And if they're not able to do that, you know then uh, channel your energy into some people create their own nonprofits. Um, others get involved with um, things that are related to whatever it was that that um, harm was or why their family member or child was in that position for a harm. So like one of the things I've also done is I fundraise for the American Heart Association because it's fundraising um, and that they have done that was, you know, I attribute to being able to put the money and funds to creating the innovations that took place for them to find out that Grant's heart was going to be, um, you know, was not going to be accurately developed when he was only 18 weeks gestation. You know, if that's, if they hadn't raised money and done, you know, funded research that, that couldn't have happened, you know, when he was born and had to have, you know, a Gore-Tex valve again, research and funding for, you know, those innovations were in place to have that happen. And so, um, I got passionate with raising money for the American Heart Association. 
Um, you know, I've also promoted the Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep because of the wonderful work that they do. So, you know, I found ways that touch on Grant's life to get involved with if I wasn't able to be a patient safety advocate. Um, it just happens that, you know, the hospital is willing to work with me. And so I'm able to make changes in that direction as well. But um, I would definitely, you know, recommend to anyone out there, those are ways that they can channel their energy in a positive direction to help give validation to their loss. Well, <clears throat> again, very uh, compelling and inspiring story and, Deanna, thank you so much for uh, sharing with me. It's been a long time coming, but um, this is you're very welcome. just a, a wonderful conversation. And I thank you again. Oh, you're very welcome, Matt. And thanks for having me again. I truly appreciate you giving me a plat- another platform to share my story. Anytime you need it, seriously. I'm, I'm happy to do what I can. If you like this show, I have two requests. One is to share it with someone and make sure that they know what a podcast is and how to get it. Either show them iTunes or Spotify. And the second request is let me know if there's somebody that you would like to be interviewed in your personal circle. Uh, People ask me all the time where I find these guests and they're friends on Facebook, friends on LinkedIn, Uh, I see um, news articles and I simply reach out and talk to them and ask them if they'd want to tell their story. So uh, this podcast was founded on the premise that you don't have to be rich and famous to tell a compelling story. And if there's somebody in your world that uh, you think would be a great interview, I guarantee you they would be. And just shoot me a note at podcast at thewarmfront.com and let's hook it up. Thanks.